Good morning or night, whichever it is for you. It's Harry. Going it alone for this episode of Forgettable Ruminations. George is on vacation somewhere else in the house. And the dogs are in self-quarantine for coronavirus. They wanted to work, but I sent them away. Because this is an episode I have to do alone. This is uh, this is one for the time capsule for my three-year-old son, George. He's just too young for the subject matter. And it's not like it's about some naked zombies roaming the earth, you know, terrorizing little blonde-haired boys, uh, dropping gratuitous F-bombs. Uh, that's maybe something for a later episode, something for you to look forward to. But this is about the uncle George should have had, my lost brother, Alec. And I mentioned him in an earlier episode titled Regrets and Gender Roles. And the only refresher you need is that my brother took his own life on April 1st, 2010, almost seven years before George was born. April 1st, 2010, the day my brother went from breathing and pumping blood to being a statistic. Uh, He's one of the 40,000 Americans who committed suicide that year. And he did it with a gun. Just like over half of all suicides. This this isn't a cry for help. A gun's not a cry for help. This was final resignation. Tipping over your king, you know, before checkmate. With a gun, you mean business. And oddly, he, he loved this kind of data and statistics. But I doubt if he would have loved these. And, and I, too, became a statistic. One among many who lost their only sibling to suicide. And our parents became parents who've lost a child to suicide. Those who, you know, kind of bear the grief, the ultimate grief. And none of us think of ourselves as statistics. That's other people. The events of our lives comprise our lives. Statistics are other people's lives. And, but what inspired me to do this episode now is an event in George's life this past weekend. He went to a funeral. Um, the funeral of his maternal great-grandfather, a man he'd never know. And George went to the viewing, saw the man in his casket, and his mother explained it kind of in, you know, in a natural way, a way to make it more palatable for a three-year-old. He's gone to heaven to begin his second life. A uh, you know, typical explanation to a three-year-old curious about why this guy isn't moving. Uh, because he's moved on to his second life, an even better one. And since that funeral, George just talked about it without any prompting from me whatsoever. I mean, he, he it's not like I, I you know, asked, hey, what'd you think about the, the dead guy in the casket? No, he was, uh, George said, he's old, he's in heaven, everything in the present tense. Uh, the, just complete denial of the finality of death. And this is George's first experience with the profound questions of existence, his first exposure to death and its link to the living. He saw it with his own eyes, direct experience. As for his would-be uncle, my lost brother, George knows nothing. Alec will never be an old man lying in a coffin for George to view. His, uh, his death can't be explained as the natural order of things. 
uh, you know, cellular decay, deterioration of tissue, organ failure, death of the organism. 86 the king, into the flames or under the dirt. Nobody calls a taxidermist. And at my parents' house, my mom keeps a, a memento wall of family pictures. And for George, you know, that's Meemaw, that's Peepaw, that's Daddy. Who's this other guy who looks like Daddy? And he'll figure it out someday. Daddy had a brother. And George will want to know what happened to him and what he, was he like. And right, George can't understand any of it right now, having lived only under, you know, the blue sky of childhood. But when it finally happens, George will have no lead up. It'll be out of the blue. He'll catch me off guard. And this episode is for that moment in the event I freeze up and say something like, you know, my brother was a beautiful but lost soul. And he's going to say, quit bullshitting me, Dad. There's millions of lost souls. Just answer the damn question. Well, he didn't die in the usual way. It wasn't his body that turned him in. It was his will. And he died of melancholy. Melancholy from the persistence of memory. And thanks, Salvador Dali, for that brilliant phrase. But my brother had a brilliant and thorough memory attached to events you're better off forgetting. He didn't live in the present or the future. He lived to continuously rework the narrative of his past. And he turned the events of this narrative into regret rather than avenues for emotional growth. He didn't grasp what a human life is. It's birth, living, dying, and death. And that's all there is. But it can be done well. It's done well millions of times. It can be done enjoyably. But he tried to erase all that memory with drugs and alcohol. And here's how it ended. April 1st is the official date on his death certificate. But I'm sure he died a few days prior. April 1st, 2010 was a Thursday. And he had called me on Tuesday, Tuesday but I was in the middle of a dinner rush at my job. Couldn't answer. Uh, so I called him the next day, straight to voicemail. And he didn't always keep his phone charged, so maybe that was it. Or maybe, you know, he was playing his bass too loud, or he was tanked, and I didn't hear his phone ring. So on April 1st, I get a call at my job from his job, General Dynamics. Uh, your brother hasn't been to work in several days, and we can't get in touch with him. So I call him straight to voicemail again. And I knew. So I drive to his house. I call my parents, tell them what's going on, call the sheriff's department, tell them what's going on, give my brother's address. And uh, through early lunch traffic from the north side of town to the south side, and my, my driving mind on autopilot. And a sheriff's car was waiting there when I arrived. My brother's car was parked where it was always parked. And so that was one hope dashed from the list. You know, I thought maybe he'd he'd bounced onto the grid for a while, escaping his tedious job and the the relentlessness of the of his creditors. And I felt the hood of his car. It was hot. And so the car had recently been driven. Uh, but the sheriff's deputy said, "You you have to feel the grate in front of the car. The hood is warm from the sun." So the deputy walks around the house several times. He's banging on the windows, hollering out for my brother. 
And then he asked me if I have a key to the house, which I did. But my brother had recently changed the locks. So, uh, you know, maybe something had happened in the neighborhood. Maybe there was some trouble and someone else was responsible. My brother was smoking crack at the time. And he had a, a gargantuan appetite for drugs, but he didn't have the gargantuan wallet for it. And drug dealers don't don't chalk up debt as the cost of doing business. They they can't write it off on their taxes. They have a uh, they have a, de- a debt collection apparatus unlike that of a regular business model. They're just a bunch of violent dickholes. And so at that time, a few more sheriff officers roll up, the deputies huddle, and a city police officer, officer arrives and joins the deputies. And the largest of these men comes to me, tells me to stay near my truck. They're going in through the windows. So I pace a few feet from my truck. You know, I'm worried. And this jackass disguised as a city policeman says, didn't the deputy tell you to stay near your truck? And at the time, I exercise my constitutional right to silence, to uh, ignore this prick. Uh, I mean, you know, if we were granted, you know, if we were all granted one get out of hell free card, I would have played it right here. And I was lost in this fantasy of ridding the world of this ticket writing jackass when the original big guy returns to me and he says, you don't want to go in there. And so I knew how my brother had done it. You don't say that about a pill overdose. My brother meant business. Um, It wasn't a cry for attention. So the deputy runs off the city policeman. He puts his arm around my shoulder and uh, I, I felt like a child with my daddy consoling me for stubbing my toe. He was as big as my father was to me when I was a child. And he gives me the card of a grief counselor and jots down his own number and says, don't be afraid to call me. And I can't imagine his actions here or any part of police protocols. Show sympathy, but no physical contact. Show sympathy, but don't give out your number. And maybe there might be a reprimand if he was caught for that. But imagine being fired for that, having sympathy, showing pathos. Imagine local paper getting hold of that info, that story. Deputy fired for caring. And, and besides, if, this sheriff, if the sheriff's off were to catch fire, this guy could probably blow it out. You need him around. But anyway, I drive away. There's nothing left to be done. I pop a clonopin, legally prescribed. I'm not a drug addict. And I wait for my breath to return and call our parents. And I'm sure my mother had been holding her phone tight-fisted since my original call. Not, not even a full ring. And I connect that, oddly, I connect that half ring to the terrible thing I later learned. And that was in her last phone call with her eldest son. My mother had chided and scolded him for being drunk or high every time he called her. And she'd never done that before. She loved him unconditionally, helped him out at all costs, financially, emotionally. And I imagine she thought what she'd done his whole life hadn't worked. So 
Instead of being an enabler, she'd take a stand. Call me when you're sober. And that was her final communication with her son. Now, my superpower is forgetting, but I could never forget that. The words spoken in that phone call would ring in my ears forever, and that's just too high a price to pay for unconditional love. And that's how we came to ha- you having no Uncle George. Had he known you'd be coming along in seven years, he would have hung on. He would have cleaned up and, because that's what you're worth. But I'll try to resurrect him for you, bring him to life. My brother was a drug addict and alcoholic from the age of 17. Functional just enough to be a passable worker, passable husband, a passable father. And when it came to his habits, he didn't discriminate. Alcohol, weed, quaalude, speed, LSD, mushrooms, cough syrup, and at the end, crack. And he exhausted, he had exhausted the formulary of illegal drugs. But, and I don't know what exactly what it was he was trying to avoid, and I'll never know. I can only use my, you know, armchair bubblegum psychoanalysis. Maybe it was his failure, you know, to be on the stage. He was relegated to a seat in the audience. And a seat in the audience is a participation trophy. But, you know, that happens to millions of people. So that's that's probably not it. They don't blow their brains out. And these millions of people are told from day one, especially here in America, we're told from day one that we're special. And then life happens and our specialness comes to nothing. We regress to the mean, to our averageness, and build a life that requires nothing more than mediocrity. The least effort, the least resistance. And then you ask, if I'm so special, how did it come to this? And that's the adult material I have to shield from George in his fourth year. There's going to be hopes lost. Um... There's going to be disappointments, harsh, harsh truths, and, you know, even bleakness at times. And without perspective and judicious forgetting, this can be the whole picture as it was, you know, for my brother. But my brother did have 45 years before that narrative became everything in the frame of his life. And, and I don't want to talk about that 90% sameness to everyone else. I mean, going to work, cleaning house, mowing grass. Who cares? The 10% that was unique to him. The things that define this human. And, and as, an, as an aside, I don't know who came up with this 90-10 split. What could their methodology possibly have been? But I'll accept it. Nice, clean numbers. But my brother Alec was fascinated with technique. The proper way to do things. To get the outcome you want. Just this love of process. And that was his lens on the world. And as as an example, when we were kids, our father coached our little league team. My brother was a pitcher. And at that time, the best pitcher in baseball was Tom Seaver. And to my brother's thinking, if I'm going to be the best pitcher, I have to do it just like Tom Seaver. I have to use Tom Seaver's technique. He didn't trust the natural fluidity of his own body. So when he pitched, he appeared to be in slow motion. He was thinking of the process while in the middle of the process. 
You know, it, it's kind of like if you go underwater and hold your breath and you get underwater and you think, geez, how do I hold my breath? Think of it this way. Imagine a stick figure animated to throw a baseball or a coach trying to teach someone who had never thrown a baseball. And that's what my brother looked like in real time. And we, we won't even get into his golf swing. That's, that's how he was with most things. Very mechanical. Almost everything I've said so far, I had to go through old, old journals to find. When you have the ability to forget, keep journals, document things. But the, the things I never had to jot down, those things that occupy the, the penthouse of my memory, and, and it's probably the same for you. You know, the, the things that you remember are the dumbest, dumb shit things you did when you were kids. And it's always worth remembering for the pleasure of reminiscing about them years later and having a good laugh. Amazed you know, that you live to tell the tale. These are the things I want George to imagine uh, when he wonders about the uncle he never had. And I'll pick out just a few among this very lengthy catalog of dumb shit things my brother and I did when we were kids. When I was seven and Alec was nine, we lived on an Air Force base in Arkansas. And on that base, not far from the flight line, was a creek. And about 25 feet wide, full of snakes. And with some neighborhood kids, we'd put on our low waders, go to the creek, and taunt the snakes. At the creek's edge were these golf ball-sized holes burrowed down into the mud. And we'd poke sticks in those holes until the water moccasins came out. And they would only chase us for a few feet. But for our story at the time, they were the most venomous snakes in the history of the world. And we toyed with them, laughed at them. We were their masters. And a few years after that, we became the masters of DDT. Uh, when the hot rains came, the town ran the mosquito sprayers through the neighborhoods. And the spray was DDT. But my brother and I and kids from the town chased those trucks, huffing the pleasant aroma of DDT. And we did it while rolling old used-up rimless tires. Fifteen kids chasing this toxic mist, all with a tire. And the driver of the mosquito truck was like the ice cream man to us. And years later, we were hanging out. My brother and I were hanging out. And we laughed about it. But for my brother, it wasn't the huffing of the DDT that stood out. It was the tires. Where did all these spent tires come from? And why were they just lying around? Uh, the town must have been like one big junkyard, a perfect environment for kids with nothing better to do than dumb shit. That's how I want George to imagine his lost uncle. A boy doing dumb shit with his brother and laughing about it years later before the screen went black. It's kind of hard to do my senseless pimping after that, but I must. Or I'll have something to regret until at least 20 minutes when I forget about it. If you'd like a transcript of this or any other episode, contact me at buymeacoffee.com. Click on the Explore Creators tab and type in Forgettable Ruminations. And please subscribe or follow, rate, or comment on this podcast or any other podcast on whichever platform you get your podcasts.
But next week, we'll be back with the entire crew. This is Harry. Thanks for the years. 